So uh, we've been in a series we call Sacred Questions, which is a, an old practice for us. And for a church this young, old means we've done it for at least two years. Um, and the last couple of weeks, we've had some really beautiful and helpful teaching from Ryan and Beth. Will you guys say thank you to Ryan and Beth again for all that they gave us? Yeah. I'm going to try to uh, weather the wind up here and uh, take you into another question. Uh, this one with a little bit of fear and trembling, because I want to get into a moment in Scripture that's not easy, but I just can't stop coming back to it with everything going on right now. And when I say everything going on right now, I mean, for example, an exchange I had with a friend just two weeks ago. Uh, this is a longtime friend of mine. In fact, by our math, I think it's the oldest friend I have. Like, I've not had a single other friend in my life go back as far as this friend goes back. And so we've stayed in touch all these years. And uh, I had heard from him a little bit and from a couple other friends that he was having a hard time, uh, specifically with regard to his marriage. And so we went out for coffee and we were catching up. And he kind of gave me the blow by blow and then told me about how just the night prior, his wife had taken her wedding ring off and given it back to him. And so we sat in that pain for a little bit. And then we kind of moved on into other parts of his life because I was just curious how he was doing. And I also knew that his work is a little bit precarious because of the work that he does. It's precarious with everything going on with COVID. And so after he tells me that his wife has taken off her wedding ring and given it back to, to him, I, uh, I ask about the work and he says, oh, about 12 hours before she gave me the ring, I got let go. And uh, this particular friend, like they've spent their entire life, like even when I knew them in high school, um, working really hard at one particular vision for their career, and they've done really well in that career. But it means they've put like all of their eggs in that bas basket for more than half of their life. And they've done really well there, but they work in an industry that is completely evaporated with COVID. I don't mean like it's diminished. I mean it's disappeared during COVID. Like the work is just completely gone, and it's really hard to say when it will come back. And so I was sitting there with him thinking about how a lot of us are experiencing life right now like this, which is it's not just one bad thing that happens. It's a lot of bad things that are happening, all stacked on top of one another, whether it's your work or your family or your relationships or just like the world around you and the people around you. And you look left and right, and it just seems like the, the, the hard and difficult stories are stacking up. And when you think about difficult things stacking up one on top of another, there is in particular one story in the Bible that at least for me comes to mind. And in fact, the way that the story sets out early on, um, very early in, in this text, it's almost written to create the feeling that trauma is just stacking up one on top of the other. So let me take you into this text and show you what I mean. Uh, this is here from the first book, uh, first chapter of that book. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. Now while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens. Let's not get into that because I don't know what on earth that means. The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. 
It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. And there's a a phrase that recurs in this passage. Uh, Maybe you heard this recurring phrase here. While he was still speaking. Like the messenger doesn't even finish delivering the bad news before another messenger shows up with more bad news. And I just keep finding my mind and my heart like coming back to this story with everything that we are dealing with right now. Anybody relate to just the stacking of all of these incredibly painful, traumatic things happening all at once? So as much as I don't want to, because no preacher in their right mind should want to preach the book of Job, I feel like we have to talk about the book of Job tonight and specifically get to a point in the text where God asks Job a question And it's not super comforting right away, but before we get there, I want to do the work uh, to get there honestly, right? So the book of Job. Uh, I have this image in mind of the person who writes this, who actually creates the text of the book of Job. We don't know who wrote this book. We don't even know exactly when. Some scholars date it very, 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 very old. Some scholars date it just very old. Uh, But we don't, like, know exactly when. There's theories about that. But I have in, in mind a picture of a person. And uh, this poet this theologian, this artist, this storyteller, this writer, I imagine that she's living in a world where there's conventional wisdom all around her. Everybody sort of has the same worldview, the same sort of basic understanding of the way things work. They toe the same party line. And the basics of that worldview say that there's a strict cause and effect relationship between virtue and blessing. That that's just the way things work. That's the way the universe works. That's the way God works. Like, like fit in whatever word for the forces uh, you want. But the way things go is that virtue leads to blessing and sin leads to suffering. And I picture this poet, this creator, this storyteller, this artist, this theologian, seeing this idea floating all around them, but at the same time observing the way that things actually go. And they know enough about their own life and other people's lives to feel a little bit like Mugatu in the movie Zoolander when he says, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills because everybody around me is buying into this crazy thing and it doesn't seem to actually be true. I picture her like saying to herself, if no one else will hear her, like I've seen plenty of examples that prove that it doesn't always go that way. Because sometimes virtue doesn't lead to blessing. And sometimes the ones who suffer the most, it's clear that it, it, it can't be because they're like especially sinful. Because sometimes the best kinds of people suffer. It just doesn't always seem to work that way. And so this artist, this poet, this theologian, she uh, goes about her craft and decides to uh, put together this story, which is really just a little bit of story and lots of meditation, lots of uh, poetry packed into these chapters in our ancient text. Uh, the way the story begins, uh, you might be familiar with this. Uh, we read that God is there among the council of the gods, which is this sort of ancient Near Eastern idea of this whole pantheon of gods. And in this case, this is like the, the major god with all the minor gods or the angels or something like that. And God's there in the council of the gods. When one of these other spiritual, powerful beings walks in, the text names this being not so much with a name as with a title. Uh, the title is Hasatan, which later becomes um, sort of attached to developing ideas about like the Satan. But just to be clear, like when this text is written, we're not so much talking about like the, the you know, uh, horns and the pitchfork and like the one reigning over hell. Rather, we're talking about uh, one of these beings that serves the purpose of something like an adversary or an accuser or a prosecutor, or like a special investigator, or something like that. And so uh, God's there with the gods, and Ha-Satan, the accuser, walks in. 
And uh, God says to Hasatan, hey, like, where have you been? And he says, oh, I've been roaming the earth. And God says to Hasatan, have you met Job? To quote how I met your mother. Uh, says to Satan, have you, have you seen my servant Job? Have you thought of this person as a witness to what virtue can look like? And it's not really clear in the text, like, why God is interested in calling uh, Hasatan's attention to Job. But all we know is that God brags about the virtue of Job. And Hasatan says, yeah, that's just because everything goes his way. If things stop going his way, I bet he doesn't appear so virtuous anymore. And so God gives permission to Hasatan and says, like, go ahead. Like, you can uh, afflict everything around him. You just can't touch him himself. And so uh, Hasatan goes and causes, apparently, the very thing that we just read about, which is the loss of all of his riches, all of his wealth, which is the flocks, and the loss of his family. So he goes through all that, and then he goes back, and the cycle repeats itself, and God's there with the council of the gods, and Hasatan walks in, and God says to Hasatan, where have you been? And Hasatan says, I've been wandering the earth. And God says, have you met Job? And he says, yeah, I have. And we hold that whole thing. And God says, didn't you notice how good he was? And Hasatan says, yeah, but that's because you wouldn't let me touch his body. You wouldn't let me afflict him. I bet if you let me afflict him, things will change. And so uh, Hasatan is given permission to go down and actually afflict Job. We read this next in the text. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. This is brutal. This is a severe degree of personal torment that his body hurts so bad with these boils or sores or a rash from head to toe that he's scraping himself with a pottery shard. And then right at this point in the story, we read that uh, Job's friends decide to come visit him. These, these friends come from far away. Like these are, friend, these are the kind of friends who would get on an airplane to come see you when life gets really, really hard. And these friends show up. And you would think that when friends come a long way to be with you when you're suffering, that's a good thing, right? Like the help is here. Like my team is with me now. Uh, but as you see in the text in a little bit, like it's actually not necessarily such a good thing that these friends show up. So they get there. They sit quietly with Job, respecting his suffering, simply sitting in solidarity with all these hard things that have been happening to him. And eventually, after a period of silence, Job speaks up. And we hear Job say this. After the silence, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish and the night that said, a boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. Uh, there's a, another translation of what Job says here. And the sentiment is basically this. God damn the day I was born. Before you get mad at me, that was from a commentator. I'm just quoting a scholar, Okay. But this is the actual heart and sentiment of what Job is feeling and experiencing like. Uh, some say that this is the moment when for Job, uh, the universe has been robbed of its coherence. Because Job's a good man. It's really clear in the text. Job's as good of a person as you can find. Job's not just moral, he's pious. Job's the man that does all the sacrifices right, does all the things that you're supposed to do to please God. He lives a virtuous life. And if you've been raised in a world where everyone tells you that virtue leads to blessing and only sin can lead to suffering, and you, you know that you haven't sinned, that you've done the right thing, that you lived the right way, well, you're not just mad and you're not just upset. Something more traumatic has happened, which is the ordering of the universe, as you previously understood it, has fallen apart. Like, things just don't work the way that you were told they work. The deal isn't paying out the way it's supposed to pay out. 
This is, this is the thing about suffering. It's not just that you hurt when you suffer. It's not just that things are hard when, when you suffer. It's that the entire sort of framing, ordering principles that you have learned to count on in your life no longer come through for you, and you don't know up from down or left for right or how to orient yourself in a world that's so far broken that it's been robbed of its coherence. And Job seems to be going through something sort of like that. Now, uh, Job has these friends here, and they're trying to be helpful, right? And so if you, if you leaf through the pages of the text, uh, you'll read these, these long sort of uh, monologues that come from the friends of Job. And the long story short of a lot of what they have to say is basically like, hey, buddy, uh, I think it's time for you to fess up. I think it's time for you to own up. Because you've told plenty of other people that the way that the world works is that, that virtue leads to blessing and sin leads to suffering. So... Uh, like, we can follow that trajectory, trace it back to you, and say, there must be something hidden going on here. What do you need to repent of? What do you need to own up for, right? And they just kind of apply over and over again the very logic that this story seems written to refute. Now, a lot of people have a lot of different interpretations on this text, and I would not claim to have the authoritative one here for you today, but I want to make a case for a certain reading. And I'm not the only one coming up with this. Uh, people who've done their work have come up with these kinds of readings too. Uh, but one thing I don't think you can do in the book of Job is believe that the friends who tell him, hey, virtue and blessing and sin and suffering, that is the way it works. I don't think you can believe that those friends are right. Because let me show you what God says at the very end of this whole long story. This is Job 42 at the very end. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, that's one of the friends who comes to Job and says, you must have done something wrong. He says, I'm angry with you. And your two friends, because you've not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. Because my servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You've not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So at the end of the story, like, the story really clearly vindicates something about what's going on with Job and the things that he's saying. So let me show you the kinds of things that Job says. This is back earlier in one of those sort of long discourses between Job and his friends. Let me show you the kinds of things Job says. Like in chapter 10, we read this. Job says, I loathe my very life. He could be in an emo band at this point. Therefore, I'll give you free reign to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. I say to God, do not declare me guilty, but tell me what charges you have against me. This is Job sort of kind of like uh, bringing his complaint to God. In fact, some scholars describe this as a particular kind of wisdom. They call it protest wisdom. This particular brand of wisdom that knows sometimes it's wise to stand up for yourself and speak the truth as you see it against all of the forces that seem to be working against you, even if it seems like maybe God is the one behind those forces. They call this protest wisdom. Job protests against the friends who tell him, don't you know the way things are? Virtue leads to blessing and sin leads to suffering. And if you are suffering, you must have something you need to own up to. He protests all of that. And at the end, God actually says, Job is the one who spoke the truth through all of this. So whatever's going on here, it doesn't seem that Job um, is written to just confirm like those early lessons that we learned about the way things work. It seems like Job is first a story about when things don't work that way, when all the coherence of the rules has been broken. It seems to be a story about the bad advice that you get from your friends sometimes. It seems to be a story about God honoring the protests that we bring, God honoring the fact that Job stands up and speaks about what feels unjust about all these things. But I think there's uh, one other thing going on 
uh, in this text, and it's really the point that I want to drive at today. So for, for we had this little framing story at the beginning with God and Hasatan and the afflictions that hit Job. Then we have this long stretch where Job and his friends push back and forth and back and forth. And occasionally Job sort of cries out to God with his protest. And then we get to the last chapters of Job, which will make you tremble in your boots a little bit, but I actually think it's where the power is. It begins in Job chapter 38, where God finally speaks directly to Job in response to some of this mess that has happened after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter of infuriating silence. We finally hear from God. And let me show you the beginnings of what God says in Job chapter 38. The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm and he said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Well, that's not very satisfying, right? The problem is it doesn't stop there either. It goes on and on, and you're going to hear this a little bit later before we go tonight. God doesn't stop there with where were you when I laid the earth's foundation. He goes on like paragraph after paragraph after paragraph of poetic interrogation with Job. Like, were you there when I set the storms in their boundaries? Were you there when I told the ocean that it can go no further beyond the shore? Were you there when I organized the stars and held them in place? On and on. It's like he's saying over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, where, uh, where were you when I created the earth? Now, that doesn't seem like a very comforting question to ask yourself when you're suffering, but that's actually the question I want to, like, propose we could carry with us from this text. Where were you when I created the earth, God says? Where were you when I created the earth? Do you have a, a whole view of these things? Can you wrap your arms around everything? Are you privy to the perspective that can understand everything? Are you a creator or are you a creature in this story? Now, I don't like that answer. It can feel like the kind of thing that preachers use to beat you up, right? It can be like the the kind of thing that we use to make you small in a shaming kind of way. It can feel like the kind of thing that a preacher could use to tell a story that I don't think the Bible is telling, to tell a story about like how little God thinks of you and how offended God is with you and how annoyed God is with you. And I don't believe any of those things about God's relationship with humanity. Many in this community don't believe those things about God's relationship with us. Like we start where the Bible starts, that God makes us in God's image, which is not a punishing view of humanity, but an elevating view of humanity, right? Like there's lots of pages in the story through the Old Testament to the, to the landmark of Jesus in the middle of the text where we see that God has chosen to dwell in flesh and blood, which is a way of honoring flesh and blood and celebrating what it means to be human and then calling us to be like Christ. And Christ bears the image of God, which is to say that God hasn't given us on us being like God. So you have that thread all the way through the scriptures that God thinks so much of humanity that he would make us to be like God. But then we have this other thing, which is like, you know that you're not the creator, right? You're a creature. Like, where were you when I created the earth? You know this thing's bigger than the perspective that you have. And I've been chewing on this text for weeks because COVID is happening and the economy is falling apart and the politics are scary and um, the trauma keeps stacking one thing on top of another. And I keep thinking about this text and then wrestling with what to do with this. And then I did something else a couple of weeks ago that I thought was completely unrelated. 
I started doing some cursory reading in the psychology of conspiracy theories. <laughs> hang with me, please hang with me. Um, I actually heard from a member of our community who has a family member uh, who's gotten really wrapped up in QAnon. And it's really sort of captured their imagination and become sort of a compass for how they interpret what's happening in the world right now. And if you haven't heard of QAnon, I, I fear that you will soon because it's a conspiracy theory and sort of accompanying things that are sort of making their way into the mainstream in really surprising ways right now. And because a member of our community reached out and was wrestling with this with a family member, I wanted to do some digging in it. And just some cursory reading in good psychology around what is it that causes human beings to buy into um, really unfounded ideas like conspiracy theories. And one of the first things that you'll see across the literature as psychologists think about this stuff is they'll tell you that when human beings are going through periods of great disruption or trauma or suffering, we seek something, and here's the term they use, we seek something called cognitive closure to help us sort of make sense of all these very confusing and scary things that are happening. When you read about cognitive closure, you'll discover, for example, that they say that the brain prefers firm answers, especially when things are scary or confusing or when there's lots of suffering or when things aren't fitting together. And the brain hates ambiguity in seasons like this. And uh, so I'm working on Job and thinking about COVID and all these hard things that were going on. And I'm thinking about the fact that Job uh, seems to be a character that comes out of a time and place with this tightly constructed universe where, with really clear rules about virtue and blessing and sin and suffering. The story seems to be written as a way of talking about what happens when all the rules fall apart and things don't work the way that we think that they're supposed to work. And then these supposed friends come along, these apparently trustworthy advisors, but it turns out they don't have trustworthy things to say because they keep trying to keep this thing locked into a tight tidy worldview. And in fact, the story is about an experience that does not fit into a tight and tidy worldview. And I think that the book of Job might be about the human journey through suffering to resist the terrible temptation to latch on to whatever will give us cognitive closure during periods of great tumult and suffering. And instead, in these moments of great tumult and suffering, to grow up a little bit. to loosen our grip uh, on that desperate desire for perfect black and white answers and to move a little bit further into the mystery of what it is to be human. Because sometimes being human means that not just you personally, but we as a world will go through hard, scary, difficult times. And the thing about cognitive closure, where you get a neat and tidy answer, even if it's not true, is that while it's very understandable that we want closure, we like neat and tidy answers, the problem is I'm not sure those answers are very good for us, and I'm certain those answers are often bad for the world at large. A few examples for you. Let's talk about like theology in church for a moment. A while ago, I was uh, hearing the story from some friends who had been through some really bad religion, and they would describe uh, the version of Christianity that they came out of as something like a cult. And one of the stories that they told me was the day that she was diagnosed with cancer at a very young age in their marriage. And the pastor, without blinking, told them, well, then I guess that's God's will. Now, I think I understand where that comes from. because I'm a pastor, and I know people like answers. In fact, I found out the hard way sometimes that when I don't have a neat and tidy answer for the thing that, that one of you might be going through, I find out sometimes that people get mad at the pastor because people like it when the pastor have neat and tidy answers, even if the answer is something as 
dark as like, well, then that's definitely God's will. God loves the fact that you have cancer. God designed a world so that you would have cancer. This is what God wants for you. Now, I don't believe that that's an appropriate answer or a well-founded answer in those experiences, but sometimes some really bad theology can come from us giving in to the desire for cognitive closure, right? But it's not just personal and it's not just in our churches. Uh, Job, by the way, yeah, it's a story about a person that seems to be about suffering and the loss of coherence in the world and what we're going to do with it. But a couple of commentators have observed something else about the book of Job. And I'm not going to get into the detail because it's a little bit tedious for the time that we have tonight. But there are these little clues or hooks in the text that suggest that the book of Job might have been written as a parable about the nation of Israel. It might have been written about the nation of Israel when they went into exile and the unbelievable suffering that they experienced in exile and the sense that they were trying to make out of their suffering. So if Job is a book not just about a person but a people, and if Job's a book about the danger of demanding cognitive closure when in fact you may not get the answers you want, you could also ask, like, what happens to a people when they go through hard and difficult seasons and they demand some kind of closure, some neat and tidy answers. Uh, psychologists that do work on cognitive closure will argue that um, when suffering happens, when trauma hits a people, this desire for cognitive closure can be the thing that fuels the rise of authoritarianism. Because it may not be um, a political leader who says that you country are suffering because of your sin, but it might be a leader who stands behind a podium and says, hey, friends, you are suffering because of their sin. And scapegoats are created. And if you know just a little bit of history of the 20th century, you can probably think of moments when a country was suffering economically, when trauma hit like a whole group of people, and when a leader was able to seize the desperate desire for some kind of closure and to channel that into scapegoating some group of people upon whom they put the sins of the nation to explain the hard thing that we were going through, and then the most heinous, evil, sinful things that have shown up in the history of humanity come to the surface. So, like, no wonder we have a book in our sacred text that confronts us uh, with the understandable desire for neat and tidy explanations for sin and suffering and virtue and blessing, but that resists giving us those explanations and instead has God wooing Job into the mystery of a cosmos that's way bigger than what he can see and wrap his arms around. So uh, when God comes to Job and gives him this um, litany of questions about like where he lands on the org chart to remind him that he's a creature not creator I don't actually read this as God being against Job I read this as God wanting to grow Job up a little bit uh, there's that line at the beginning of the of the 38 chapter 38 text I read you where in that translation it says very politely brace yourself like a man the actual text translates a little more literally to gird your loins because I'm going to question you now. I'm going I'm to draw you out into this interrogation. And a number of commentators have argued, and I tend to agree, that maybe this isn't God saying, all right, like, I'm going to beat you down now. Maybe this is God saying, I'm going to grow you up now. Yeah, you are suffering, and it's really, really hard. But rather than, like, 
encouraging you to go seek those black and white needing tight answers. I'm actually going to grow you up a little bit into the mystery that you were a part of. And you're not going to get the answers that you want. You're not going to get things that satisfy you. But that's okay because many of the things that satisfy us aren't good for us. Instead, I'm going to just remind you that you are a participant in a cosmic mystery. And it's beautiful and it's harrowing and sometimes it's terrifying. And yet there it is. Uh, any Lord of the Rings fans? Yeah. Uh, confession, I've not read the books. Big fan of the movies, though. And there's that moment in the first of the trilogy when Bilbo Baggins is about to leave the ring behind and go on his great adventure. And he's really sort of waffling on whether he wants to do this. And the, the ring is really bad for him. The ring needs dealt with, right? So you have Gandalf, the great wizard, the great sort of symbol of wise and generous and sacrificial power who is there with him. And Bilbo is sort of going back and forth and hiding with the ring and then giving up the ring and then hiding with the ring again. And do you guys remember the moment in Bag End where Gandalf makes himself massive and his voice gets deep and loud and sort of terrifying? And he says, Bilbo Baggins, I am not some conjurer of cheap tricks. Gets really big, right? And then he says, I've not come to rob you. I've come to help you. And he goes from that um, very terrifying presence back to a tenderness, and Bilbo runs into his embrace. And I've come to think of this moment with Job and God a little bit something like that. Like God is sort of making God's self large in this story, but I don't think it's because he's against us or trying to hurt us. I think it's because he knows that in moments of suffering, when the trauma gets stacked on top of trauma, gets stacked on top of trauma, that like if he doesn't woo us into the mystery, we will run back into the certainties that we held on to, but it will get ugly when we do that, not just for us, but for the world at large. So we have this um, strange poetry of God speaking and asking where were you when I created all of this? And I think in that seemingly simple question is an invitation to remember that we are participants in a mystery way bigger than we can see. So I don't know if you're going to get all the answers you want right now about why suffering has come and why we are living through this moment. But I think we could let God woo us into the mystery. That same friend that I talked to who... Um, whose wife gave him the wedding ring back and then who lost his job. I've, like I said, we've known each other for a long time and I've, um, I've had a front row seat to see the beautiful and really profound ways that he has grown and matured over the years. And he's a person I would describe as um, very wise. And I was sitting there across him at the, at the coffee shop, like I'm in tears thinking about the things that he is going through. And he's, he's feeling all the things. Sure, he's pissed and he's sad. He's feeling all the things. But alongside those feelings, he also said, he's like, you know, like every time things get hard, like I try to fix things when I can't fix them or I, you know, like white knuckle this stuff. And he says, um, one thing I know is that right now I'm being liberated from some of my attachments. The things that you hold really, really tightly that you might have to let go of. He said, so I, he said, I don't know like how this will go. He said, I know I'll be okay, whatever that means or looks like. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's what like wisdom 2.0 looks like. It's really good for kids to learn that there's a relationship between doing the right thing and good things happening. That's really good. That's like really great wisdom 101. Like we need to grow up through that worldview that says that like do good and good will come to you. 
do bad and harm will find its way. Like, there's actually some truth in that. The problem is it only gets you so far, right? And then you got to grow up into another level of wisdom that is waiting for us, especially in moments of great suffering and trauma. And I'm not, I'm not thrilled about it, guys. <laughs> I actually wish it wasn't that way. I'm certain Job is not a book that explains why it's this way. I just think it's a book that draws us into this encounter with God, who reminds us that though God calls us bearers of his image, though God loves us, um, that God is the mystery that we call creator and that we are in the place in this story that we call creature. And there can be something holy and liberating in knowing that. Now, I've talked to you about the text for a little while. Uh, I would rather let the text work on us. And so I asked my friend Pam if uh, she would come. I said, I need somebody to speak in the voice of God, and so I can't think of anyone better than a strong black woman to talk to us right now. And so I asked Pam if she would come, and she's going to read at length from Job 38 and 39. And um, I would just say, like, see what these words do to you. Maybe you'll bring to this text a complaint or a protest for the world that we're living in right now. And maybe at the end, God will say that you, like Job, spoke the truth. Good for you. But then maybe God will also say, but but now I want to liberate you from your attachments and rescue you from the addiction that we have to all of that neat and tidy closure and just draw you out into the mystery. And maybe the text will do that for us tonight. And so Pam, if you wouldn't mind, and Roy's going to lay down some super spiritual music. And we'll just invite the Spirit of God to uh, speak through the text and to do whatever the text will do. Where were you when I created the earth? Tell me, since you know so much. Who decided on its size? Certainly, you know that. Who came up with the blueprints and measurements? How how was its foundation poor? And who set the cornerstone when the morning stars sang in chorus and all the angels shouted praise? And who took charge of the ocean when it gushed forth like a baby from the womb? That was me. I wrapped it in the soft clouds and tucked it in safely at night. Then I made a playpen for it, a strong playpen, so it could run loose and said, stay here, this is your place. Your wild tantrums confined to this place. And have you ever ordered morning, get up? told Dawn, get to work, so you can seize earth like a blanket and shake out the wicked like cockroaches. As the sun brings everything to light, brings out all the colors and shapes, the color of darkness is snatched from the wicked. They're caught in the very act. Have you ever gotten to the true bottom of things? explored the labyrinthine caves of deep ocean? Do you know the first thing about death? Do you have one clue regarding the earth's dark mysteries? And do you have any ideal of how large this earth is? 
Speak up. If you even have the beginning of an answer. Do you know where the light comes from and where darkness lives? So you can take them by the hand and lead them home when they get lost? Have you ever traveled to where snow is made? Seen the vault where hail is stockpiled? The arsenals of hail and snow that I keep in readiness for times of trouble and battle and war. Can you find your way to where lightning is launched or to the place from which the wind blows? Do you suppose, who do you suppose carves canyons for the downpours of rain and charts the route of thunderstorms that bring water to unvisited fields, deserts no one ever lays eyes on, drenches the useless wasteland so they're carpeted with wildflowers and grass? And who do you think is the father of rain and dew, the mother of ice and frost? You don't for one minute imagine these marvels of weather just happen, do you? Do you know the first thing about the sky's constellation and how they affect things on Earth? Can you get the attention of the clouds and commission a shower of rain? Can you take charge of the lightning bolts and have them report to you for orders? Can you teach the lioness to stalk her prey and satisfy the appetite of her cubs as they crouch in the den, waiting hungrily in their cave? And who sets out food for the ravens when their young cry to God, fluttering about because they have no food? Was it through your know-how that the hawk learned soaring effortlessly on thermal updrafts? Did you command the eagle's flight and teach her to build her nest in the heights perfectly at home on the high cliff face, invulnerable on pinnacle and crag? God then confronted Job directly. Now what do you have to say for yourself? Are you going to haul me, the mighty one, into the court and press charges? Job answered, I am speechless and in awe. Well, we made it through Job. I mean, at least in the text, I don't know about your life. But, um, if you're able, you stand to your feet. It's interesting in the text, by the way, that almost as a postscript, Job gets everything back. Uh, double. And I don't know what or how it will come back to you that you've lost in a hard time. But there does seem to be a bedrock conviction in the story that God is good in spite of the mystery of some of the things that we suffer and that he's calling us to grow up. So I hope you hear that um, with the tenderness and love with which it's spoken. Um, but I think we want to grow and at least make use of these difficult things. If they're, if they're going to come, we, we could at least seize them for what we will become. And trust that God is there with us, wooing us uh, to mature. And so, uh, may we take comfort from a text which admits that suffering doesn't always make sense. 
May we take comfort from a God who welcomes the wisdom of protest. May we take comfort from Jesus who teaches us that God has caused the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. From Jesus who has suffered with us, that we may know not just um, comfort, but new life on the other side of everything hard. May we uh, resist the urge to hold a tight grip to answers that no longer serve us, especially the ones that are breaking the world rather than putting it back together. May we be vigilant about what people will do with our fear if we don't learn how to walk bravely when things are hard. Uh, May we let God interrogate us and remind us of the wonder and mystery that we are a part of. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.